Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. The idea is Michelangelo saw the angel in the marble and just carved to set it free. So I think my work with suicidal patients is I see the hope inside them and I do whatever I can to eliminate what's getting in the way so they can see it and feel it. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Live Boldly podcast with Sarah Shelton Kranz. This is an inspiring podcast for those seeking proven ways of healing, growing, and transcending their lives. I am a legendary leader in healing, acclaimed author, keynote, and TEDx speaker, a mom, an adventurer, and a believer in all things possible. My mission is to guide others to live their life boldly, regardless of circumstances. I believe we all have the power to overcome and lead joy-filled, happy lives. Recorded from the trail or in my office, every other week I share inspiring stories from everyday people because we all deserve to be heard. You will also hear from hand-picked professionals ready to guide you beside me. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Live Boldly with Sarah Schulting Kranz. Today I have on my dear friend, Dr. Mark Golston. A retired psychiatrist and former UCLA professor of psychiatry and FBI who had a subspecialty focus on suicide prevention and during his 40 plus year practice, none of his patients died from suicide. Go grab your journals because we dive into some very special and unique uh, tools that I know will help you as we step into 2023. I know from my own experience personally and professionally, having a lot of clients this last year, many people had a difficult 2022. There were a lot of layers within our own trauma that were pulled back, things came to the surface, and I just know that this is the perfect guest to step into this next year as we move forward. Before I do that, I want to remind you, you know, our Grand Canyon retreats, the signature retreats, they have ended. We have our very last one in January. That said, there are other retreats that are opening up. And so I want you to go into my website, sarahsheltoncrayons.com and pay attention. Take a look under retreats because we have one for sure that I am doing with Florence Williams in the San Juan Mountains in July. And then I have another one that I'm looking at as well, which is canoeing uh, down the Green River in Utah. Alaska, I am toying with. If that is something that everybody wants, I will 100% jump in and guide you through it because I do have to say that is a really amazing retreat. So message me, Sarah at SarahSchultonKranz.com. Let's jump into a one-on-one, take a look at the retreats that we are offering, and let's move through this next year together. Now, Dr. Mark, he is the developer of Surgical Empathy, an approach that reaches people in the core of their pain and helps break their attachments to destructive mindsets and behaviors. He is the author or co-author of nine books translated into 42 languages with his book, Just Listen, becoming the top book on listening in the world, and which, is, which was recently named as the number four best communication skills book of all time by most recommended books. 
He recently was honored with the Shine the Light Media Award by the Los Angeles County Medical Association for bringing attention to teen mental health and suicide. He is an executive producer of the documentary, What I Wish My Parents Knew, and co-creator and moderator of the documentary, Stay Alive, an intimate conversation about suicide prevention. He's also a former FBI and police hostage negotiation trainer and host of the My Wake Up Call podcast. Now, I have to say I was blessed and honored to be a guest on uh, Dr. Mark Golston's uh, My Wake Up Call podcast and Surgical empathy is something that uh, he definitely does, and that touched my heart and soul deeply. As you dive into this podcast episode, please send me anything that you find to be uh, nuggets of perfect information for you and your life. Please share this podcast with those that you also care about. Throw it into your social media, tag me. Let's all be ripples of kindness and uh, truth, understanding, and education for one another. I love you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And thank you for being here as always. Hi there, Dr. Mark Golston. I am a huge, huge follower of yours. I met you through Sean Enton, right? And um, I was on your podcast and you touched my heart so deeply, moved me. and here you are with us today. So I want to thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to, I'm looking forward to this conversation. This is going to be fun. So I want everybody to grab your journals because this is going to be a note taker, right? That's a lot to live up to, Sarah. (laughs) You know, you asked me, you said, how long is this going to, how long are your podcasts? I said, well, it depends. But with you, I think it's going to be the full hour. I love your work. And I was listening to a podcast episode that you were on. uh, I don't know when it was, but earlier today, I was walking my dog and listening to it. And I did not know your story prior to getting into this work. And I really want to start there. I want to start with what got you into doing this work, which has now rippled into other people's lives and also brought us together. Well, there's three little people remember stories. So, yes. But there's three stories or and. I got to stop saying, but uh, and there are three stories that cover listening into people's minds, listening into people's eyes, and listening into people's souls. Mm. So uh, something that your listeners don't know, or viewers don't know, uh, uh, I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I think I had untreated depression. And someone went to bat for me and uh, probably saved my life. And so I just paid it forward for 30 years and and none of my suicidal patients died uh, by suicide. But there were three anecdotes that uh, give you a, a sort of a feel for how I look at the world and into people. The first one, uh, I was a medical student on rounds at a veterans hospital in Boston. And I I think I was struggling with depression all through medical school. And so I remember we were outside Mr. Jones' room. And when you're doing rounds, you're there with medical students, you're with interns, you're with residents, you're with an attending doctor, and everybody's bantering with each other. Everyone's trying to, you know, 
sort of impress each other. And I'm, I was just there kind of clueless. And uh, so we're outside Mr. Jones' uh, uh, room, and people are bantering. And I'm a little bit clueless. And then the nurse comes over and says, didn't you hear Mr. Jones jump from the roof and he's in the morgue? So everybody goes quiet. And I heard a voice. uh, And it was probably a thought or it was a voice and I was hallucinating. It could be one or the other. And what the voice said clearly was, maybe Mr. Jones needed something else. Mm -hmm. So that was listening into someone's mind who wasn't even alive. And I think that was the beginning of the seeds that maybe I'll become a psychiatrist. And then the next episode, uh, I'd finished medical school, and there I was at UCLA doing my psychiatry residency. And I get paged by uh, doctors on one of the units. And they said, Mr. Smith. Now, these are not their real names. I don't remember their real names. And I got paged. And they said, uh, Mr. Smith was pulling at his IVs, kicking at his bed, um, pulling at the respirator tube that was in his throat. So we need you to come up and okay an order to restrain his arms and legs because he's pulling at everything. And also to okay the um, medication order, the antipsychotic to calm him down. So I go up into Mr. Smith's room and his eyes are as big as saucers. And and he's just moaning because, you know, he has this respirator tube in his mouth and he's going, uh, 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 and I said, what is it? And he's just screaming at me. So this is listening into eyes. Mm. Saying, what is it? And then I put a pencil in his hand, which was strapped down. I say, write it down. And it was all scribbled. And so I thought, well, maybe the other doctors were correct. And I said, look, you were pulling at the IVs, you were kicking at the bed, you were pulling at the respirator tube, you know, so we had to put your arms and legs down and I'm giving you something to calm you down. And then when you calm down, we'll just take everything off. And he's just staring at me with those eyes. And so I leave. And then the next day I get paged and they doctor said, Mr. Smith told us to page you uh, specifically. And I go up there and he's seated in his bed. He's off the respirator. He's His arms and legs are out of restraints. And I walk into the room and he looks over at me and he grabs onto my eyes like I'm grabbing onto yours. And he says, pull up a chair. And mm. he eats me with his eyes. And he wouldn't let go of my eyes. And he said, what I was trying to tell you and the other doctors is that a piece of the respirator tube had broken off and was stuck in my throat. And you do know that I will kill myself before I go through that again. Do you understand me? And he just grabbed onto my eyes and my eyes watered. It was was an awful feeling. And I said, I understand. I'm sorry. Wow. And he said, good, we understand each other. Then I finished my psychiatry residency at UCLA. And one of my specialty areas was suicide prevention. And I had a mentor named Dr. Ed Schneidman. And if you look 
him up, S-H-N-E-I-D-M-A-N, you'll discover that he was one of the pioneers in suicide prevention. And he was one of my mentors, and he referred me suicidal patients. So uh, I started my practice. You're not supposed to see more than one person who's suicidal at a time. About a third of my practice were suicidal patients who had been discharged from the hospital. Uh, Because Dr. Schneidman would go up to a consultation, put the person on the phone, page me, uh, and say, Mark, I'm here with this lovely young woman. I'm here with this handsome young man. They're in a lot of pain, Mark. You could help them see them. He put them on the phone. We'd set up an appointment so they could be discharged. And one of the patients, I'll call Nancy. That wasn't her name either. I'd been seeing her for six months or so. And she'd been in the hospital every year for a month or two months. Way back then, you could be in the hospital that long. It's not that way anymore. And she'd made several suicide attempts. And I'd been seeing her for about six months after she was discharged. And I didn't think I was helping her at all. She'd come in. She wouldn't make eye contact with me. So if you're me and this is her, she'd be like this. She Mm. wasn't catatonic, but she'd be like this. And so... One weekend, I was moonlighting at Metropolitan State Hospital, which is in Norwalk, California. And moonlighting means I was covering for the other doctors and psychiatrists. So I'd go to the inpatient units and I'd write for medications and I'd admit new patients to the state hospital. And sometimes you don't sleep for 24 hours or longer. And there was a Monday that I came in and saw Nancy after not sleeping. And there she is like this. So I covered listening into people's minds with Mr. Jones, into people's eyes with Mr. Smith. And now with Nancy, uh, I'm there and she's like this. And I'm looking out at her like I'm looking at you. And all the color in the room turns to black and white. Wow. So I'm looking at her and it's black and white. It's like a black and white photo. It's kind of kind of neat. Uh, <laughs> and I feel cold. And I thought, ooh, I'm having a stroke or a seizure. So I did a neurologic exam on myself because I'm a medical doctor, psychiatrist, and we were trained in that a little bit. And so I'm looking at my finger to see if I'm seeing double, and I'm tapping my elbow, tapping my knees, and she's like this, so it wasn't rude. And then I thought to myself, I'm all here. I'm not having a stroke or a seizure. Then I had this crazy idea that I was looking out at the world through her feelings. Oh. And it was black and white and cold. And so I blurted something out that normally I wouldn't have said if I wasn't sleep deprived. And I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to, to get out of the pain. And I thought, did I say that or did I think that? And I thought, I think I said it. I just gave her permission. And that was the first time she made eye contact. Wow. And she went from this. Just looking all over. Yeah. She locked onto my eyes. A little bit like Mr. Uh, Smith did. 
And I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding I'm overdue uh, to kill myself because I just gave her permission. And I said, what are you thinking? And she looked at me and she said, if you can understand why I might need to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't have to. Wow, Mark. And then I locked under her eyes and I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to give you any treatments that haven't worked before, unless you ask me. I mean, if you say, maybe we should try a medication, maybe we should try whatever, would that be okay? And I'm locking onto her eyes, and she goes, uh-huh. And then I leaned in, and I said, what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to find you wherever you are, and I'm going to keep you company there as long as it takes. Because I just don't want you to be alone there anymore. Would that be okay? And then she got a little tearful and I got a little tearful. And I think that was the beginning of something that I called in the last year surgical empathy. And I'll tell you, I don't know if I've shared this on another podcast, but I'm back in the episode right now. Right now, I'm sharing it with you. I'm back there. And I think I just got an insight into what surgical empathy is. When she was looking like this, what she was filled with is hopeless, without mm -hmm. a future, helpless, powerless, useless, worthless, meaningless, purposeless, pointless. So she was without all the reasons we need to live. And she had attached to death as a way to take the pain away. So death was compassionate to her because it took the pain away. And when I felt what she felt and I could understand it, and I could even feel that if I was feeling this pain for as long as she's feeling it, I would have killed myself. So what happened is she felt felt by me. I wasn't telling her not to kill herself. I was telling her I wanted her to be out of her pain. And I wasn't really sure how to do it, except the conversation led me to say, I'm going to find you and keep you company there. And in surgical empathy, the way it works is when people are feeling all those things without hope, without help, without power, without purpose, without meaning, without all those things, they form a psychological adhesion to death. It's not an attachment. It's an adhesion. What's an adhesion? Well, after you have surgery, sometimes your organs stick to each other. Those are called adhesions. And when that happens, you have to go back in and cut the adhesion. I mean, it's not going to listen to reason. And so surgical empathy is going in there. And Nancy felt felt by me. And she let go of death as the only way to help her pain. 
and she grabbed on to feeling less alone in the dark night of the soul. Wow. You know, I think that there, I believe that there are people placed on this earth to create such good. And it's one conversation at a time, which I know that you believe in as well. And those conversations have repercussions far beyond than what we even realize. And how fascinating that these three conversations that you have had, because they are stories, they're people's stories, they're your stories now. And those stories create so much good in the world. Have you always been like this? Where you could just sit with somebody and look at them and you're like, I feel like I'm sitting with my best friend and yet also an angel walking this earth, I'm going to call it. Somebody that can literally look at the person that's filling their grocery bag and see them as human, as the person that's walking across the street, as human as their client, as human as the CEO, as human as your partner. Have you always been like this? No, but it's interesting you use the word angel, and I'll tell you why. Uh, some years ago, I was speaking to Reverend Jim Kowalski, and he was the Reverend of St. John the Divine in Manhattan. And that's this big cathedral who I believe during Christmas, they bring in a giraffe, they bring in a donkey, they bring in the whole shoot match. And I was speaking to him, and I was raised Jewish, but I told him this story about someone who I think saved my life. So I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that I dropped out of medical school twice. And the second time I dropped out, they wanted to kick me out because they were losing matching funds. So mm -hmm. I can't blame them. You know, he he drops out, he comes back, he drops out again. You know, I I, I wouldn't think this this is a good bet. And if we're losing money every time he drops out. So I met with the dean of the school who's about money, and I don't really remember it. And I'm telling Reverend Jim Kowalski, I said, so the dean of the school sent uh, called the dean of students who cares about students, because I think the dean of the school knew that uh, they wanted to kick me out and didn't want me to do something self-destructive. Mm. Wow. So, uh, And he knew that that wasn't his deal, so he referred me to the Dean of Students. And so I'm telling this to Reverend Jim Kowalski. I said, the Dean of Students called me and said, Mark, you better come in here. I got a letter from the Dean. I go in there, and he says, read the letter. And the letter is from the main Dean, and it says, met with uh, Mr. Goulston, uh, talked about other careers. I'm advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw because I was miraculously still passing classes. Uh, and so here I was asking for another leave of absence. And I come from a background where you're only worth what you can do in the world. Mm. You can't do anything. You're not worth much. So I was a little bit broken. And I said to the dean of students, uh, Dean William McNary, we called him Mac. Uh, he was an Irish Catholic there in Boston. And I said, Mac, what does this mean? And he said, 
you've been kicked out. And then what happened, and I'm telling this to Reverend Jim Kowalski, and then I cratered in front of the Dean of Students. It's like, oh. and I know that feeling because uh, uh, I had a perforated colon about 15 years ago and almost died. And so it was that same feeling of, oh. and then I felt something wet on my cheeks and I thought I was bleeding. So I'm touching my cheeks and I'm looking at them like this. You know, and I'm not really religious. Maybe I'm spiritual. I don't know. But I'm looking like it's blood. And I'm telling this to Reverend Jim Kowalski, a Jew telling the head of a big big church. <laughs> I'm bleeding from my eyes, Reverend Jim. Uh, and, uh, uh, and then what the dean of students said to me is he said, Mark, you didn't mess up because you're passing everything. But you are messed up. But if you got unmessed up, I think this school would be glad they gave you a, a second chance. And so at that point, I realize their tears, and he's just pummeling me with compassion and kindness. And he hit me with what I call the trifecta of hope. Uh, the first thing is he said, uh, he gave me unconditional love and value. He said, even if you don't uh, get unscrewed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you. Because you have a streak in you of goodness that we don't grade in medical school, we should. And we assume it's there, but we don't grade it, and you have it. Uh, and I'd be proud to know you. So that's the first part of the trifecta, unconditional love and value for something other than what I could do. And then the next thing he says is, uh, you have no idea how much the world needs what you have, and you won't know it till you're 35. But you're going to make it till you're 35. So he saw a future for me that I didn't see. So that's the second part of the trifecta. And then the third thing, by this time, I'm just crying. I'm just crying. I couldn't even look at him. And the third part of it is he said, "You." he pointed his finger at me. He said, you deserve to be on this planet, and you're going to let me help you. If he had said, you know, give me a call if I can help you, I would have gone back to my apartment, and I would probably not be here today. Um, and so th that was the three parts of hope unconditional love, seeing a future that I couldn't see, and his going to bat for me against the medical school. We're going to give this kid a second chance. And so here's the thing that I haven't shared on a podcast before. So I'm speaking with Reverend Jim Kowalski, and I'm a Jew speaking to this big mega pastor, you know, uber pastor. Uh, and I said, I'm getting this warm rush right now. Um, Dean McNary was an angel. He was an angel sent to save my life. And I don't even know what I'm talking about. But he was sent to save my life. 
And so there I am speaking to Reverend Kowalski. And he said, you're an angel. Mark, I call it like I see it. Uh, well, I still can't, I can't accept any of that. Uh, but I don't know. Um, so I didn't mean to share it, but it came out, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Can I ask you something? What is so hard to accept being an angel for so many people? You know, it's interesting you say this because I'll, I'll share another story. Please do. I attend a church called THADS, T-H-A-D-S dot org. Stands for Thaddeus, T-H-A-D-S dot org. It's an experimental outreach of the Episcopal Church. And it's self-supporting. I mean, it's not wealthy people at all. It's hardworking people, and we donate what we can to keep it going. And we all love the pastor, John Depos. And I go there because it's all-inclusive. It's non-judgmental. Everybody's welcome, and they have a sermon. And then for 20 minutes, it's like group therapy. So, you know, what do you want to talk about? And it's wonderful. And so one Sunday, John says, you know, Mark, everybody is glad you're here. You know, and we know you're a Jew. And uh, in fact, when we talk to the board about how all-inclusive we are, we say, hey, one of our members uh, is a Jew. He's still a Jew. He's welcome to come here. We like him being here. So, you know, I thank you for coming. You're like my token Jew here. And so he says, would you give a sermon? So there's a sermon called Of Goodness and Mercy. And you can find it, Of Goodness and Mercy, Fads, Goulston. And what I talked about is how for years I thought I didn't have enough I wasn't good enough because I didn't perform enough. I did, I've never focused on money. You know, I'm reasonably well-known, but I just don't focus on money. Um, uh, and uh, so I felt I wasn't good enough because I didn't perform well enough, didn't make enough money. But then here, this is the longest tangent, tangent you've ever heard from a guest, Sarah. <laughs> Getting back to what you were saying, why I can't accept being seen as an angel. And I said, I realize that it's, the reason I wasn't good enough was not because I didn't perform well enough. It's because I have something called the Jungian shadow, which everybody has, which means I have a part of my personality that's very dark. And I use my energy to push it away. Because if I let it in, it affects my conscience. Mm -hmm. So when I uh, so down deep in my Jungian shadow, I'm petty. I'm selfish. I hold grudges. I have a chip on my shoulder. You know, um, I'm cruel. I'm sarcastic. Now people will say you're none of that, Mark, and I'm not even consciously aware that I use that, but I know it's there. And so I thought not being good enough was that I had this Jungian dark shadow. But when I realize that everybody has it, as long as you don't act on it, you're good to go. So I have to share this story because there I am 
this Jewish member of a church giving a sermon, and here's how I end it. And it's a good thing they think fondly of me. And I say, look, I'm not the only one who has these hangups. I want to tell you a parable. And it's the parable of Jesus and St. Tom. So there I am telling this to a church. And I say, uh, uh, Jesus says to St. Tom, you gotta, uh, you got to watch the pearly gates for a while because St. Peter's not here. And St. Tom says, what do I do? What do I do? And Jesus says, you know, when they come up, ask them about me. I mean, they spend, they spend too much time thinking about me. But ask them, you know, who is Jesus? I think you can figure it out. So Jesus comes back about three hours later and says, Tom, how are you doing? And Tom says, I think i got to figure it out. And Jesus said, who'd you see? Tom said, it was right out of Disney. And Jesus says, what do you mean? He says, well, the first person looked like the fairy godmother in Cinderella. And I said, who is Jesus? And she said, Jesus is beauty. He is love. He's kind. And Jesus said, huh, Tom, what'd you do with her? Oh, I sent her through. Who'd you see next? Tom said, Geppetto out of Pinocchio. Yeah, I mean, bushy mustache, the glasses. And I said, I said, tell me, who is Jesus? And he says, Jesus is strong. Jesus is just. Jesus is fair. And Jesus said, huh, what'd you do with him? Well, I sent him through. And Jesus said, did you see anyone else? And Tom said, yeah, uh, but I don't know if I want to tell you about him. Jesus said, no, no, tell me about him. And Tom says, right out of Disney, this was a villain. Pointed chin, pointed hat, gold tooth. And I said, tell me about Jesus. And he said, Jesus is vindictive. He's petty. He's selfish. He's cruel. And Jesus said, so what'd you do with him? And Tom said, send him away. And then Jesus mm -hmm. looks at Tom and says, but Tom... That last person saw me exactly the way I am. But what he failed to see is my daily effort to not be that way. Mm. So that's that's got to be the world's longest tangent. You start out with, so what makes you think you're not an angel? <laughs> well, so I, I'm, I love that parable. And right away, I'm like, of course, of course, that's who he is. I ask this because I do believe, and this is going to go on to another question I'm going to ask you, but, um, and the, but the, and, and I also do believe that we have, we have so many parts of us. We have the parts that, I mean, I've got darkness in me, right? And it's through that 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 darkness, through that those setbacks, through those things that I have where I have wronged myself, where I've wronged others, where I've had my deepest learning to actually find that light and to continue to shine that light, not only for myself, but to create a better world. And am I an quote angel? I've been called the same thing. And I remember the first time that I was called that, it was hiking out of the Grand Canyon. I ran across a guy who was in his late 70s, struggling up the side of the mountain, wearing jeans alone, very small backpack. It was super cold. We were hitting snow and he was sitting on a rock and I was hiking out with my cousin and I stopped and I looked at him and I said, how are you doing? Do you need any help? Let's have, and I literally sat down, had a conversation with him. That's what I did. 
one conversation at a time. And here I found out that he was hiking the Grand Canyon for his 78th birthday alone to celebrate. And he was hiking out and it was getting cold and he was scared. And we just had those moments, right? It was like that moment. And he said, I was really tired. And now you've given me some energy to keep going. And so he hiked out of the Grand Canyon. Now I'm sharing my story of this. He hikes out of the Grand Canyon. We get out and there's so much snow all over the place. And now you have to actually hike in the snow to get to where the lodge is. And I kept thinking about him. What is he going? How is he going to get there? Who's going to pick him up? What's going to happen? So I got back to the lodge and I talked to the people at the front and I said, could you please make sure that you keep checking on him to make sure that he actually does get here. And then let me know. So I know he's safe. I'm going to go in and I'm going to eat some dinner at the restaurant. And he eventually makes his way in through the front door. He didn't actually see me that morning or or, sorry, that night. He didn't actually run into me that night, but I sent a piece of pie to his room. And I share this because this is also the act of kindness. I sent a piece of pie to his room, blueberry pie. And I said, could you put a candle on top because it's his birthday? Make him feel a little bit special because this is how, right? Like he deserves to feel special. And he sent me a note and I put a little, I wrote a note and I said, give him this little birthday note from me as well. And I'm telling him I'm glad he got out and I'm glad he's safe. And the next day he sent me a note and he said, you have been my angel. You were the angel that crossed my path exactly when I needed you. And he sat and we ended up meeting in person and he cried and he said, we need more of that in the world. You know, we do. And we do. It's those, it's that angel within us, that light within us that then we can spread goodness into the world. And I think the beautiful, the most beautiful thing that you do, Mark, is that you guide people to their inner light. You meet them where they're at when they're feeling nothing but darkness. And that is the most special gift that anybody can ever give on this planet. It's the power of being seen, heard, understood, loved unconditionally, and given those that power to actually take that next step into their living, not into life, but into their living. And so I'm just going to call it like I see it. I see you as an angel. I really do. And uh, we need more of that. We need so much more of that. Here's my question. Can you teach this? Is this something that's learned? Is this something that surgical empathy? Is it something that we all have? Or is it something that people just don't understand? Is it something, this power of vulnerability and authenticity, is it something that in empathy, can you teach that? Are there some people that just don't have the ability to go there? Well, well, I think, look, we'll just say that people who are dyed in the world, narcissists and psychopaths, don't go there because they can't and they don't want to. And But if we push those people aside, which we need to, uh, uh, I think it's in all of us. I, I think I think we're all born complete. Mm. And then the world and events conspires to try to convince us we're not. But I think uh, if you think about it, just before we're born, we're totally connected to our mom 
and our wish is her command. We're hungry. Here comes a little bit of glucose down the placenta. We're cold. Well, we're kind of warm in the womb. And and we're totally complete. And if it's a decent mom who has not injured us by drug use and other misuse while she's pregnant, you know, we're whole, we're complete. And then we're born. And I think one of the reasons we cry so loud is because we go from totally omnipotent, where our wish is our mom's command, to powerless, Mm. unable to communicate what we need other than just crying and then people trying to figure it out and uh, and it's not rocket science well you know keep us warm hold us you know literally holding us uh, there was research that showed that failure to thrive babies in england were ones who weren't held that often in orphanages by the nurses so just even physical touch and then what happens is we're always developing uh, self-sufficiency. So uh, there's a gap, but as we develop various abilities, we can start to fill the gap on our own. You know, and so we fill in the gap with uh, mastery. Uh, but we also internalize what we are given, and when we're in a state of need as a a, a infant a baby, a child, when we're needing that from the world, the world can respond to us in a combination of four ways. Uh, uh, It can be angry at us. Go to sleep. Sleep through the night. Finish your bottle. It can be angry at us. It can be uh, neglectful. Uh, It just leaves us there, you know, hungry, poop in our diaper. It can coddle us. It can it can so coddle us that it spoils us so that when we grow up and the world doesn't coddle us, we're we're screwed. Or it can be a give us what I call a loving teacher mentor coach. Loving teacher mentor coach. And one of the examples I give when I give presentations on this, and you know, you know, forget the some of the bad times Tiger Woods been through. But when he was young, he was really close to his parents and his father and mother, but especially his father, Earl Woods, was a loving teacher, mentor, coach. They were best friends. And one of the stories that I I love to share is that in the 1997 Masters Golf Tournament, that was Tiger's first uh, appearance there as a pro, He shoots 40 on the front nine, which is three or four over par. Not a good score. He comes back to Earl, his father, and says, I don't know what's happening. The wheels are falling off. So Earl Earl absorbs the pain so the tiger doesn't feel alone. He absorbs it. Tiger can get it off his chest. And then he looks at Tiger and says, You've been here thousands of times before. Just do what you need to do. And Tiger goes out and shoots 18 under par, having shot 40 on the front nine. And it was never equaled until recently. Um, But that's the power of a loving teacher, mentor, coach. 
and you internalize that. And and so I think it can be taught, but you have to experience it. Yes. You know, what your listeners don't know is that you and I are kind of working together. And and I think when people feel understood and feel felt, and there's not one scintilla of the other person judging you, what happens is you surrender to it. Yeah. You let go of control. So when I've worked with some people over the years, and even now with people I coach, they'll say, I can't hide from you. I'll say, is that good or bad? <laughs> some of these, you know, some of these are high achievers, CEOs, and they'll look at me and they'll say, it's weird, but it's not bad. <laughs> yeah. And I say, so what's so powerful about that? They say, you know, I hide from everyone. I hide from myself. And I'm tired. But it's all I know. But I can't hide from you. And so I think, do you follow what I'm saying? Is I think what happens. 100%. People surrender into that. And to be honest, I mean, what some people have said is, Mark, you're like a, you're like ayahuasca without the ayahuasca. You're like a psychedelic. I mean, because if you think of what happens with psychedelics is people go and they're a little bit control freaks. They're a little bit uptight. They're tightly wound. They're high achievers, but they're not at peace. They go take the psychedelic and they surrender to it because they're on drugs. Right. And a shaman or a therapist saying, no, it's okay to vomit. It's okay to diarrhea, have diarrhea. It's, you know, it's all in the package. Don't worry. So they surrender. They fall apart. And then they come back together again organically. Right. And so that I think that's what psychedelics do. And I think psychedelics or surgical empathy creates sort of a place in which you can just surrender and collapse. I, I recently, uh, uh, I, I'm in a couple documentaries, and one of them is called Stay Alive, an intimate conversation uh, about suicide prevention. And I interview Kevin Hines. He's very well known. He jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. He's been on CNN. And I interview him in Stay Alive. It's a, It's on Amazon Prime. And I was recently on his podcast, and he was recently on mine, and he talks about uh, being uh, moments before he jumped over the railing on the Golden Gate Bridge, and he said, you know, I was hearing voices saying, kill yourself, kill yourself, but I get there, and he said, I'm looking around, and all I needed was someone to just see me. All I needed was someone to say, you Okay. And then he tells this story, he said, and a woman comes up to me, and I thought, she's the one who's going to see me. And then she says, I guess she was from another country, she said, can you take my picture? Oh. <laughs> so she gives him his camera, he takes her picture, she leaves, and he jumps over the railing. And then, and as soon as he jumps over the railing, he real it's like his whole mind comes back together again, screaming at him. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. And so he curls himself into a ball, like a cannonball, and he hits the water like concrete, and he breaks, you know, half the bones in his body, and uh, you know, and he makes it through that. But what was interesting is when we were on the podcast, I forget whether it was his or mine, 
I said, Kevin, can we try something? He said, what? I said, I'd like you to go back to right before you jumped over the railing. And I'd like to be the person who sees you. And are you there? And let's have a conversation. And I'm asking you, what's going on? And you say to me, I can't take it anymore. And I say, what's happening? It just hurts too much. And we go on and on. And I said, what I'd like you to imagine, and we're both crying. I said, I want you to imagine that you just sort of collapse and you're sitting there with your back against the railing and I'm sitting next to you. And you keep talking. I put my arm around your shoulder and you keep talking. And at one point you just collapse your head like, and we go back there and save his life. I said, now, I'm glad we did this. But you're having survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and how you've now spent your life over 20 years doing what you've done. You've saved many, many, many people's lives. So I'm glad we went back there to do what we did. But I'm glad you jumped over the bridge if it taught you to be able to share your story and save lives. So can you sort of follow with that? It's so interesting when we go back to those moments. And we've done it. One yeah, of my 17-year-olds, we've done it. Yeah. And it's on your podcast. And it's so interesting when we go back and we sit with those parts of us. And we become that human surgical empathy right? We do like that surgical empathy and we just hold that person and let them walk with us in the present moment. And I just think it's so, there's so much beauty in that. There's so much beauty in that. And so, Was, and so you're asking, can it be taught? I think it, I think it needs to be experienced. Yes. hundred percent. And And then depending on the value of that experience, so I experienced it from the dean of students, mm -hmm. and and I also experienced how valuable it was. So that what happened is when I took that second year off, part of what I did is I went out to a place called the Menninger Foundation, which was a famous psychiatric center in Topeka, Kansas, which is now uh, centered in Houston, and I discovered there that. I had some ability to connect with schizophrenic farm boys. And, you know, I grew up in a suburb of Boston. I didn't know anything about farms or schizophrenia. But, you know, I, I just leaned into, oh, maybe, maybe there's something that I know how to do. Right. And so I knew that when I came back, all I had to do was finish med school. And then I was going to take a left turn and become a psychiatrist instead of a different kind of doctor. Was Kevin the one, there was one person, I believe that they jumped off the Golden Gate, and was he the one where the dolphin came up? Yeah, the dolphin. Okay. So his story, uh, for your listeners, yeah. is he, 
jumps off the Golden Gate Bridge, and he's bobbing up and down, and a dolphin comes over. Yeah. And is bobbing him up until the uh, lifeguards or some a boat came over and picked him out. And so talk about an angel. Um, so I believe that nature also has the ability to do its own surgical empathy on us, mm-hmm. hold space to be able to have that connection. They feel us. I've done it with whales where a whale has literally locked eyes with me mm. when I've been on my board. And in that moment, I just thought, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. There have been so many times when I've been in nature where I've looked out from a mountain peak and looked you know, into the valley below and thought, wow, this is such a beautiful grand space. And I may be so small in this space, but I matter. And my story matters and what I'm healing, like how I'm healing right now matters and how it's holding me matters. And no doubt that dolphin has, I, that's definitely an angel. I would believe as well. Um, And that dolphin felt the presence of pain and wanted to be there to hold him, literally hold him up for survival. Yeah, you know, and if you're listening in, and this sounds a little bit woo-woo, um, we've all seen how dogs and cats, but especially dogs, can comfort people. You can take them on planes. They know your pain. They'll come over to you. You're lying on the floor. They'll come over. They'll they'll moan. They'll growl uh, to bring in help. They'll lick your face. So it's it's not that unusual for the world to want to reveal itself to caring about us. There's an exercise I do. I think I shared this with you, but uh, one of the exercises I sometimes do in presentations is I say, after my talk, I want to give you the experience of being a sort of alpha and beta. And alpha is take the hill. Beta is being receptive. I say, uh, go for a walk, you know, if we're at a hotel or a nice place, go for a walk and notice what you're noticing. And as you're walking forward, you're a telephoto lens. You're zooming in and you're taking charge of the environment. And it feels good. Oh, I'm hiking and I'm feeling positive. And then I say, you know, as long as it's safe where you're walking, now, walk backwards and you're a wide angle lens and as you walk backwards feel the world wanting to reveal more and more and more of itself to you so instead of taking charge which you are when you're walking forward walk backwards and just allow the world becoming ever widening and revealing itself to you and just take it in. It's so healing doing that. It's so healing. How does this, when we're doing so much, because we're talking about also parents, mothers having the having their their babies, and when you're in your mother's womb, and I know you and I have talked about this separately, how our healing and how our ability to listen 
and have awareness not only impacts us, but it impacts those other people within our life. I choose to believe, because I am also a spiritual person, that it impacts my angels above, my mother who's passed recently. Tell me a little bit more about that. Do you believe that that happens? Um, What's your thought? Well, what is the impact? Uh, well, I believe there is goodness in the world. Um, uh, I started a company, but we may revise it called Michelangelo Mindset. Oh, I love this one, by the way. Thank you for sharing this. I listened to this. If you go to MichelangeloMindset.com, we have a site. And, and, and the idea is Michelangelo saw the angel in the marble and just carved to set it free. So I think my work with suicidal patients is I see the hope inside them and I do whatever I can to eliminate what's getting in the way so they can see it and feel it. And uh, and we're, we're running out of time because I got to run somewhere. Yeah. But I want to leave something for parents. It's something I call the four prompts. <clears throat> so... Imagine you have a teenager who's moody and they don't open up to you and you try one of those heart-to-heart conversations and it's like nails on a chalkboard. They hate it. But here's a Michelangelo conversation with that teenager who is hurting inside but never shows it. And you're going to use these four prompts when you're driving or when you're you're doing an activity because you don't want to do this eye-to-eye contact. Teens can't stand it. And so what you say to your team that you're worried about, hey, um, can I run some things by you? All, all of us parents are worried about our kids. You know, we don't know what the pandemic's doing. We read all these news about what's happening and the internet and all that. Would it be okay if I ran a few things by you? And, and hopefully if you tee it up that way, they'll say, okay, mom, okay, dad. And here are the four props. The first one is at its most painful worst. How awful are you capable of feeling about yourself or your life? They're going to say, what? Yeah, at its most painful worst, how awful are you capable of feeling about yourself or your life? Pretty awful. Surgical empathy. Pretty, pretty awful or very awful? Okay, okay, very awful. And when you're feeling that way, here's the second prompt. How alone do you feel? Pretty alone. Surgical empathy. Pretty alone or very alone? Okay, okay, very alone. And, and you get them to converse with you. You don't just check boxes. You get you pull it. Tell me more about that. The third prompt, take me to the last time you felt that. And they're going to go, what? Are they going to go, WTF? <laughs> you say, yeah, was it uh, 2.30 in the middle of the night a few nights ago? Uh, heard you walking around in your bedroom. Yeah, Take me to the last time you felt it. And when they can share something with you so clearly that you can see it with your eyes, they're not alone. Mm-hmm. And they share it with you. And they open up. And they go through. And you don't interrupt them. And then the fourth prompt and if you're lucky, you will have earned the right to eye contact. So if you're driving, pull over the car, you know, and you say, look at me. 
and you say, I have a favor to ask you. Next time you feel that, or you're even heading down the road towards feeling that, I want you to do whatever it takes to get my undivided attention or your dad's undivided attention. Because our minds are in a million different things. And there's nothing more important to either of us than helping you feel less alone when you feel that awful. And by the way, you're not a burden. It's not a burden if you tell that to us. Tell that to me. We don't want you to feel so alone when you're feeling that way. And my proof that you're not a burden is that when you grow up and you have children, if you are fortunate enough and that child's in a rough place and you get them to open up to you, it's not going to be a burden to you. So those four prompts, people seem to find helpful. I'm going to deem you an angel. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'll just say thank you. I had a mentor who said, when people give you a sincere compliment, don't be high maintenance. Just receive. <laughs> receive. Okay. I know. Like we're still learning this, right? Thank you for being here. Where can people find you? Um, well, you can go to fads.org. Uh, <laughs> visit. Uh, they do every Sunday at 10 a.m. Pacific time. You can do a Zoom. You can join the Zoom call. Or you can go in person uh, uh, to a, a school where they uh, where they have uh, uh, meetings on Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Um, markgulston.com M-A-R-K-G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N.com or my podcast which is mm -hmm. my wake-up call uh, and you can find me there and my LinkedIn is pretty much up to date so um, from the business side of the tracks uh, you can find me on LinkedIn it's always a pleasure it's just always a pleasure. And I'm so blessed and honored to know you and to call you my friend. So thank you for being here. I appreciate this conversation. Well, given that I'm an angel, I hereby bless you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> receive it. <laughs> thank you. I am receiving this. I receive. You thank you, Mark. I would love to have you on again sometime. Would you come back on sometime? I hope so. Uh, I love that. Oh, we got so much to talk about. You thank you. Thank you. My friends, thank you for listening to the Live Boldly podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I am so grateful to have you here. I'd love to invite you over to sarahschultingkranz.com to receive five free meditations recorded by me or download your free guide on how nature is your perfect healing therapy. My site has many free resources to guide you on your life journey, many that I used myself while on my road from victim to survivor. And also, please, I ask that you share my podcast with those who may need inspiration, information, or who may need to hear from others going through where they are right now. To grow this podcast, please leave an iTunes review and subscribe. 
Go find it on other platforms such as Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please also go to my Instagram or Facebook page, leave a message in my comments, and tell me what you think of this episode. Please share in your stories and tag me. I'd love to reshare and celebrate your healing journey. I love hearing from each one of you. Let's keep the ripple going. It begins with each one of us. I love you. And as I always say, I believe in you, us, always. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.